0: scene is one of desperation. It's a scene of brokenness, something that we are not unfamiliar with, but something that we do love to ignore, and we chase often distractions so that we can avoid the reality of the brokenness in certain areas of life, but this scene on this day is unavoidable. We see three people walking down a very dusty, cloudy road. As the dust is kicked up, just looking into the distance, we see the atmosphere doing that thing that it does when it's so hot. And the vapors move in sort of a vertical way, making the scene somewhat blurry. As they get closer, we recognize that it is three women. One of them much older than the other two. We see the tear stains in their face where the dust has stuck to that. And it's obvious, not only is the scene broken, but they have been broken. And as they walk by us and we turn to continue watching them, the thing that is so striking is recognizing how much road they still have to travel, how far they still have to go. And it becomes very obvious something has happened. Something created and caused this journey, something happened in their lives to create the need to travel. Because in this day, this is not a time that travel was easy. What happened? We find in what's been called the book of Ruth, it's only eight books into the Bible in the Old Testament. The story of Ruth and Naomi, and what unfolded in a culture in a day, and I I think from this there's some things that you and I can grab and learn, and maybe some things that we've not seen before. We began last Sunday this series called, What If?, and we're asking some questions that I think have high value. Questions can be our best friend when we're willing to ask and answer them honestly, In fact, it's not the unwise, but the wise that recognize we don't know everything. It's not the unwise, but the wise that understand there are certain questions that we need to grapple with and process with, and people who do not ask these questions live lesser than lives because they've never confronted the reality of some things they've been unwilling to think about. So here's the question that I want us to consider this morning for just a few moments, What if what I do now matters more than what I did then? What if what I do now matters more than what I did then? Because what I did then and what you did then has a way of paralyzing and debilitating us and creating a less than future. Because we become so focused on what I did then and what you did then that we think we can't now. What if what I do now matters more than what I did then? What if God even understands that I can't go back in time and neither can you? What if what I did then does not have to define who I am now and what I'm going to do now? Naomi, her story to me is somewhat captivating. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now that phrase in the day when the judges ruled, it was before Israel had kings. In fact, if you read the book of Judges, you discover that when Israel had no kings, everyone did right according to their own view and their own perspective. That tells me that that culture was not unlike our culture. In a day and a time where everyone does what we feel is right, right? And even for those that are Christ followers, we have the benefit of having the scriptures, and yet there is this somewhat subtle approach that many of us make today when it comes to the word of God of we might read it, we might discover something in it, and yet we still reserve the right to decide if we believe it's accurate or not. It's not unlike the day that they lived in. So in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judea, now this is not accidental. In fact, the irony is somewhat striking to me. There is a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So coming from a house of bread, yet there's famine in the land where the house of bread is supposed to be. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So this man is an Israelite. He is part of the people of God. And yet because things are difficult, because there's a famine, because there's this this struggle, and it doesn't look like it's going to be fixed or corrected quickly, he he glances in a different direction from where he is. He, He looks to an area that's different from where he's supposed to be, and he decides... I know that here I am under the protection and the provision of God. I know that here I'm around the people of God, but it feels like over there I can do better. So he goes to the country of Moab. Now, I don't have time to get in the full history of the country of Moab or the history of the Moabites. What you might want to know is that this entire people began as a daughter got her father drunk and then slept with her, slept with him. And from this ancestral relationship, a people group is started, and they just happen to be Satan worshipers. Somewhat intense. And yet, Naomi's husband. One of the Israelites, part of the people of God, living in this area, but there's a famine in the land. Things are difficult. Things are trying, and it do- it's not going to go away by next week. This is going to be a long process. Looks over there and says, well, the Moabites seem to be doing okay. I think we can move there, and we're going to be better off. We- we'll financially be able to be better off. We- we'll have more comfortable things around us. There is no famine there. I think I know best. Let's go there. What he fails to think about in that moment is if you take your bride and your two sons and you go from the people of God to over there, what, what you fail to think about is your two sons will probably marry people from there. Your two sons will play on ball teams with people there. You've just changed not only the affiliation but the loyalty of your family culture because you've made a decision where you believe something is best. Now, I understand the desperation... None of us want to live in a famine. We, we want to live in the house of bread where there is bread. But we, we often decide that somehow without saying it, okay, if God is God, that's fine. But he seems somewhat out of touch with what I'm dealing with. And I've decided, I've calculated, I've reasoned that if I go there, it's going to be better for me. He forgets that God is to be worshipped. He forgets the law of the time that you you, you don't immerse yourself with people that don't worship your God. And there are pages in Scripture we can go to that talk about not being unequally yoked and talk about who we align to. You've heard the phrase even today. We don't have to go to Scripture. You hear the phrase all the time. Show me your five closest friends and I'll show you your future. And yet the decision is made. For what would seem to be practical reasons and yet are in reality very selfish reasons. To leave where God has them and go to somewhere God is not. And when we forget God, we find ourselves in the house of bread and the land of famine. When we decide, I know better, this doesn't seem like what it should be. If I were God, I wouldn't let there be a famine. Something's wrong. Something's broken. I'm going to take matters into my own hand. It doesn't really matter what God says, because in the moment, what I see is that I think that is better. And somehow we tend to forget that we have such limited vision. We tend to forget that God has already been in our tomorrows, and God sees the future better than we can. We tend to view from a very temporary perspective what seems to be better in the moment, and yet without intending to, what we end up doing is abandoning what God has told us to do. Because something else looks better. Now, here's what's interesting to me. We find in verse 2 of Ruth chapter 1, yes, it's taken this much time just to get through one verse, so you've got to listen much faster. Verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech. Naomi's husband, who made the decision, I'm going to take my family from the presence of the people of God and from being connected with the people of God, and I'm going to go over there, yes, they worship Satan, but it's not going to affect us, it's not going to get into us, and somehow we'll be able to protect our sons, but it just looks like we'll be financially better off if we go there. It's often amazing to me over the years, the people that took the job and took the promotion, and took the bonus and moved their family, not factoring in the presence of God in the church that they were a part of and what might be missing where they go. Somehow we chase what looks better without factoring in what God's doing. You know what's fascinating to me? I always hear the story of, Pastor, we we got a job offer in another city. We got to go. It's more income. Never even factoring in Who are the people I'm going to be around? Because you understand, in this room, we have chosen to do life together. Like, we get one shot at this. One shot. And you chose this morning to spend time 60 minutes with me. It might be longer than 60 minutes because Dallas has a bye week, so who cares? We don't have to get out on time. (laughs) But we're doing life together. And it's amazing to me how we chase. You know what I rarely hear? Pastor, I'm in a pretty lucrative scenario. Things are going well, but God has stirred and moved in my heart. I need to move to Orlando, Florida and be a part of what God's doing in this unique movement. I'll take a pay cut or whatever I need to do. I just want to be with the people of God, making a difference for God and helping people who don't know God. You don't hear that story very often, do you? It's often that we chase what we think is better for us. The man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech Elimelech literally means my God is king, which tells me you can have the title without the lifestyle. My God is king. I'm a Christ follower. I love God. But that's always defined in the cloud of circumstances that says all that's good as long as I perceive that God is somehow blessing me. But if it gets difficult, if it becomes challenging, if it looks different than what I thought it should look like, I might call myself, my God is king, but I'm going to go where I'm king and I think I can do better. Elimelech had a title, but not a lifestyle. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, which literally means lovely or beautiful. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were, hard name, from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now think about this. Elimelech is taking his bride and his two sons away from the people of God, going into a culture. And it's not not that they were different culturally. Listen, there is a richness to diversity. There, There is a celebration that we should have over diversity. God made you different. God made me different. It's not about that they were different. I grew up in a part of the world in Texas where I think they thought everybody, I think they thought heaven was just going to be all white. I'm not kidding. I grew up in a church that had bylaws where someone of another race could not join the church. I was a child. I had no idea. I think those people are going to be blown away and I, I, I would love to inform them somehow if I could at this point that, that Jesus was not in fact a white man. So this is, not about, this is not about a lack of diversity or abandoning. No, no. All this is about if the Moabites had worshipped the one true God, no problem. This was about the choice of their philosophy of life and who they worshiped and how they went about their life. This is not about a cultural difference. There is richness in cultural diversity. Cultural diversity is to be celebrated. God created us to be different. And and, and just frankly, one of the things we understood when we began C3 is if it's all white, it just ain't right. So diversity is something that we celebrate. I think it's important to understand it was not about that. It was about their belief system and their philosophy. Now, Limelech, Naomi's husband, died. Sir, the decisions you're making and where you're leading your family and the place that you're taking them to, if you die there, what's going to happen to them? Now, Limelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah. I always want to say Oprah, but it's Orpah. <laughs> one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they'd lived there about ten years, both Milan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi was left without. The same way you were. She stood at the gravesite of her husband and then her two sons. And maybe it wasn't your husband. Maybe it wasn't your two sons. But she's literally standing at the gravesite Of her hopes. Maybe it wasn't your husband or your sons you buried. Maybe it was your hope. Maybe it was your dreams that dirt has been thrown over. Because they're gone. Maybe you've made some decisions and and you woke up and you look at your life and it's, it's nothing like you thought it would be. And when you get in that place, when I get in that place, it's very, very easy to just think it's over. My best days are behind me. There's no way that God, who knows everything about me, could still love me or even like me. There's no way that God could use me the way I wanted him to. There's no way that God's presence could be in my life. Why would God even bother to answer my prayers? Have you seen the history of the decisions I made? I I, I left being around him, and I went over here and did my own thing. But what if what you do now Matters more than what you did then. What if God really is a God of grace and mercy? What what if there is no moment, there is no path where I can go to a place that is too far from the reach of the grace and the love of God? What if God really is a God of the impossible? When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. The drought is over. The famine is over. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you. So they begin the journey on this long road, about 50 miles they're going to go on this journey. And somewhere in the journey after they had left, they're going to the land of Judah. Naomi is returning, but these two young ladies that married her sons are Moabite women. She says to them, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. It's interesting, earlier she calls them daughter-in-law, and now she's calling them daughters because there's an intimacy and a closeness, and she really has the proper motivation. She wants the best for them, and she just doesn't see any way that if they journey with her, it's going to be good, because all she sees is what she sees. Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husband's? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Don't miss that statement. Because when she says, even if I thought there was still hope for me, what she's saying is hope died. There is no more hope for me. It's the very same way that you feel sometimes when you look at your life and you look at some of your decisions and some things have happened to you and other things you've done to you, and you think, I- I'm going to live the rest of my life less than. The hope that I had about what it would once be, the school that I wanted to go to, the job that I wanted to have, the kind of marriage that I dreamed about, the family that I wanted to have, the friends that I hoped would be there, all of that is dead and gone. So now I'm just going to somehow make the best of it. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Fatal flaw. Do not ever assume that because life has gotten hard, the heart of God has. Do not ever think because it's difficult that God has turned against you. It may feel like it in the moment, but don't trust your feelings. When you trust your feelings, you put yourself on an emotional roller coaster that will devastate your life. Don't trust your feelings. We are in October. All of the ads are about scary movies. I don't do scary movies at all because they take my feelings places I don't want to go, so I just avoid it. But some of you, it's not October, it's December, it's February, it's April, and you base your entire life about how you feel on the day, and yet, if honestly you look at it, you'll recognize that 10 years ago, you felt differently about some things that you do today. Your feelings are going to change. So we have to base our life on the promises of God, and the miraculous thing is, in recorded history, all that we have, God, has never lied, not even one time, not even a little white lie. He has a great track record, and he promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So Naomi thinks that what she did then, even if it was a mistake, really was it her fault she was just following Elimelech. She had no choice in that culture, and yet somehow she believes that what she did then was so terrible and what she did then was such a mistake that it caused God to be so angry that he's turned on her. What if you and I are going to face famines and dead ends in life? Where do they come from? What if dead ends and famines can be a mess we made? There is nobody alive on planet earth or that's no longer on planet earth that has ever treated me worse than I've treated myself. There is nobody that has done to me worse than I've done to myself. And the same thing is true. If you want to look your worst enemy in the face, look in the mirror. That's where we find it. And sometimes it's our pattern of thinking. Sometimes it's our perspective of life. Sometimes it's how we view God. Sometimes it's how we view the people we love. We are experts at blowing up our lives. So sometimes it's a mess that we made. Sometimes it's a mess someone else has made. For Naomi, she could point to Elimelech. In that culture, she had no choice. She had to do what her husband was saying because women were not viewed with the same value as men in that culture. And what's fascinating to me is the person who changed all of that was Jesus. And so I look at the life of Jesus and how he came to elevate women, not diminish women. This morning, we are looking at some women and how they responded to life. And we're going to see a strength in one of these women that most men do not have. Sometimes it's a mess someone else made. Sometimes dead ends and famines are setting the stage for a miracle. You only know that God can work miracles if you get in a bad enough situation that it requires him to move because you can do nothing. Sometimes it's just setting a stage for what God wants to do. And what if, what if, what if God does some of his best work in the dark? A pregnancy lasts nine months, and apart from modern technology, you can't see what's happening. You see some evidence on the outside, you see nothing on the inside. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years of silence, and it seems like absolutely nothing's happening, and yet God is preparing the world to send Christ, and he's about to send the Son of God to planet Earth. All of that is being planned in the dark in silence. So what if God does some of his best work in the dark? What if you're in a season of darkness and you feel like you're not hearing from God and you have no idea what's coming in life and you, you, you feel like you've gone to a, a foreign land where people think differently than you and you thought it would be one way, but it's turned out differently and you're not sure, but you just feel like you've lost all hope and you've, you've stood by the graveside of your hope because where you were is not where you are and you have no idea how to get back and you don't even believe God would allow that. But what if what you do now matters more than what you did then? What if dead ends and famines can be just life? Just life. Life is hard. That's why some of you are here. Life is hard. So Naomi is is talking to her two daughters-in-law, and she's saying to Ruth and and to Orpah, you need to go back, you need to go back. And and verse 14, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. And she left. Some of you, this is the moment. The entire reason God has you in this room this morning is to hear what I'm about to say in this moment. Then Oprah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. When people leave you, let them go. When people walk away, let them go. Stop trying to convince somebody to stay in your life that God is trying to remove from your life. Stop focusing on what is left, because when you focus on what is left, you miss what God's doing now and what he's bringing into your life. Some of you, you hung your hopes and dreams on people that left you, and you've never gotten over it. When people leave you, let them go. Don't call them, don't text them, don't chase them. When people leave you, let them go. And it's not because Orpah's bad, it's just because she was only there for a season. Some people will only be in your life for a season. They're meant to be with you for a time, not forever. They can't go where you're going. They don't have what it takes to go where you're going. When people leave you, let them go. Don't argue. Don't fight it. Don't beg. When people leave, and not just let them go, let them go, but inside, let them go. One of the things that I've learned in my mind, and maybe maybe it's because I'm a pastor, and so one of the things that I have to do as a pastor periodically is, is funerals. Did you know I've learned to have funerals for people that are alive? I've learned when people leave in certain ways, I have a quick funeral in my mind, and I move on. I'm not going to waste my life's energy, my emotions, and I will not let it, allow it to affect me and my family and bring into my home the grief over something that clearly God allowed to be removed. I, I will not try to chase that down. I'm going to try to chase down what God has. I'm not going to live in the moments of the past and cry about what happened. It does absolutely no good. I'm going to trust God for the future. When people leave you, let them go. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth is different than Orpah, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, and this passage has been used even in weddings, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. Orpah left, but Ruth. Naomi has already said, I've grown bitter. The hand of God has turned against me. God is not for me. You and I live in a city full of people that feel like God does not care for them. There are people that live on your street. There are people that work at the same address you do. There are people whose kids play on the ball team with your kids. There are people that you sit in class with that feel like God might love some people, but not me. God might be for some people, but not me. And every one of those people need a roof. Every one of those people needs somebody that will come alongside and say, hey, you know what? No matter what, I'm not going anywhere. No matter what, I'm going to love you. No matter what, I'm going to pray for you, even on your worst day. When you act like a jackass to me, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to keep loving you. I'm not going anywhere. And that is exactly what God calls the church to be. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, how determined was Are we? It's not hard to be talked out of caring for people because we're selfish. It's not difficult to decide not to help, not to serve, not to love, not to give, because we're selfish. I wonder what would happen if for every person that you know and every person that I know that doesn't know Jesus... I wonder what would happen if we could be a but-Ruth kind of people. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? See, they remember when she left. They they remember when they they left and they went to Moab. And now years later, she's coming. Could this really be her? She doesn't look like her. Could this really be her? And she says, don't call me Naomi, she told him. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. In the midst of all that, the previous conversation with someone that loves you so much that they said, I will never leave you. And yet the perspective is not on that at all. The perspective is not on God removing the famine from Judah. The perspective is not on the faithfulness of God. The perspective is all negative about what God hasn't done. What if we stop watering things that were never meant to grow in our lives? See, your thought process and my thought process, we can approach any scenario we face in life and believe the best about God or the worst. And if you're not careful, did you know that negative is more contagious than the flu? If you're not careful, if I'm not careful, We can begin to see God as the problem because we miss all the things he's doing. Now, part of it comes from our own guilt because we also know how we've messed up. But what if what you do now and what I do now matters more than what we did then? I'm not saying we have to be happy about what's happened in life. Being angry is human, but staying angry is foolish. You're going to be angry. I'm going to be angry. There are things that I don't like. God, how come you have not led Jerry Jones to fire Jason Garrett? I don't understand. There are things I don't like, and I get angry about it, usually every Sunday. Great thing about this Sunday is I'm not going to get mad. (laughs) Dallas doesn't play. I'm not going to get mad. It's going to be a great day. I even rode the motorcycle this morning. It's going to be a great day. I don't ride the motorcycle when I'm angry. That's dangerous. (laughs) So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem. Listen, when you think it's all bad, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. You're arriving at a time, even when it doesn't feel like it, that something's beginning. The grace of God could be beginning to soften your heart. You could be beginning to step into some courage and lean into your faith rather than your fear and ask yourself the question, what if what I do now matters more than what I did then? Chapter 1 of Ruth is intense. The small book is only four chapters long. If you go through the entire book, the very last verse in the book, I've walked you through chapter 1, but the last verse in the book, Naomi comes back. She's with Ruth. Ruth ends up getting married. And and through that process, God does something very special. And Naomi's heart begins to turn and change. The woman who said, look what God's done. God does something miraculous. And the last verse in the book, I don't think it's by accident, the last verse in the entire book. Because Naomi, Naomi did something now. No matter what she'd done before, she went back to Judah. Notice the very last verse in the book. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of... David, the lineage of Jesus, because what you do now matters more than what you did then, and what you do now can set up what's coming, and when you're faithful now, and you say yes to what God is asking you to do now, even when you have a bad attitude, have you ever obeyed with a bad attitude? Our kids do it all the time. I mean, not not our kids, but other people. We've read about them. (laughs) They tell their kids to do something, and they they, they perform outwardly exactly what you've asked, but inside they're throwing a fit. I'm so grateful that God looks beyond the bad attitude. I'm so grateful that God is a perfect loving father, not just a father, that that can say, okay, his attitude's bad, but when I show him what I'm going to show him, as long as he sticks with it, because consistency has always been the biblical pattern for success, as long he sticks with it, his outward actions are obeying me, but his inward attitude sucks. But as long as he sticks with it, that inward attitude's going to change also. Because what you and I do now matters than what we did then. Don't let anybody convince you that you are who you used to be. So what if there's still hope? Because God can take people with broken legacies and through them bring healing to others. What if there's still hope? What you and I have to understand is you can't be who you're going to be and who you used to be at the same time. You you can't embrace what God has for your future while holding on to your past and trying to drag it along. You, You can't do that. There will be people periodically that will leave you. Let them go. Step into what God has for your future. What if what I do now matters more than what I did then? So the question, what do you do now? You have replayed in your mind and focused so much on what you did then. What if you stop that movie, turn it off, erase it from your DVR, and begin to focus on what you're going to do now? Because as long as you're consumed with what you did then, you'll never be able to fully focus on what you're going to do now. So what does God have for you now? Hey, Ruth, who does God want you to love? Who does God want you to invite? Who does God want you to care about that everybody else is walking out on? Hey, Naomi, what is God saying to you about your own bitterness and your anger? And are you willing to miss what He has for your future because you're emotionally stuck in your past? You can hold on to what was, but you'll miss what can become. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much for every single person in this room. God, we all have areas that are broken in our lives. None of us are perfect. We all have things we're ashamed of in our past. But, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this week as we walk through the week and as we ponder this text this morning that your grace is big enough and your forgiveness is deep enough and your mercy is wide enough. That even you don't define us by who we used to be. Father, I'm grateful this morning that when you look at me and when you look at those of us in this room that are Christ followers, you see us through the blood of Jesus and and he has put his righteousness on us and you, you see us for who we can be, not who we were. I pray that we would live in that freedom. I pray that we would ask ourselves each day, what if I do now, what if what I do now, it matters more than what I did then? You tell us in the letter to the church at Corinth that when we come to you in faith, all things are made new. You tell us also in your word that your mercies are new every single morning. You tell us that you're a God that will never leave us and never forsake us, even on our worst days, even when we blow it the most. So Father, even if the what we did then was yesterday or last week or last month, I pray that we would recognize the freshness of your grace, the strength of your love, And I pray that not just on a mental level, but in the depths of our soul, we would embrace and live in the mercy of your forgiveness. So that we can be who you've called us to be. Not perfect, but yours. Not perfect, but hopeful. Because of who you are, not who we were. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here this morning. And the greatest need of your life is to surrender your life to Christ. If that's where you are, I want to invite you to pray a very simple prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of the moment. You just say, dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to live for you. As best I know how, I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen.